G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. This is study 20, Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 to 31. We can call it the problem of riches. Ah, you may be thinking, if only this was a problem for me. This chapter, which is difficult all the way through, gives us one of the most puzzling of all the parables, as, if it is misread, or even if it is read quite casually, Jesus appears to commend dishonesty. The story is about a landlord's estate manager, or steward, who was sacked for inefficiency in an unusual way. There is no lengthy argument, or plea for reinstatement, as you would have expected in that culture, The steward ceases immediately to be the approved agent, but the rent books are not taken from him. Listen carefully then as we read the first eight verses of this chapter. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors, He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonored manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The estate manager was able to reduce the rents and get the tenants to note the changes. So 800 gallons of olive oil went down to 400, and 1,000 bushels of wheat went down to 800 probably with the promise to share the reductions with him quietly afterwards. Because of the tenants writing on the documents, the landlord cannot reinstate the changes without losing face and honour. Clever. Of course, the chapter division was not in the original documents, so this story follows closely behind the one of the prodigal son, or whatever you decided to call it, And this story supports that one in some ways. So, question one. What are the parallels between this parable and that one? There are two noble fathers or masters. There are two ignoble dependents. There are two moments of truth regarding losses. Two pleas for mercy. Two problems of broken trust and its consequences. Question two. 
What knowledge of the nature of the landowner did the estate manager display by what he did? Think particularly of why the landlord dismissed him, why he didn't imprison him, why did the landowner agree to pay the price for the deception? What does this parable teach us about the nature of God? In that sort of culture, there would very likely be a relationship several generations long between the families of master and steward. Honour has to be maintained on both sides, so grace is necessary. It teaches us that our God is a God of relationships, not accounting practices. Our God is a forgiving God, who, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, is prepared to forgive the many things we have done which we should not have done, just as the Master forgave the manager things he should not have done. We were careful to end the story at verse 8. Most Bibles paragraph this chapter in a way that suggests the next few verses are also part of that story. But that is unlikely, because it would make verse 9, which says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings, suggest we should be as dishonest as the manager. And the next two verses also sit very uncomfortably with the parable when they do make good sense in isolation. The next parable clearly starts at verse 19. In between is a collection of sayings, probably from some other occasions, linked by key words and ideas. So we will now read that collection of sayings in verses 9 to 18 of this chapter 16. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trusted in handling worldly wealth, Who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Question 3. What does verse 9 
which says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What does that mean if it is to be read separately, not relating it to the story before it? It teaches us that worldly wealth is not to be used solely for our own benefit. We are to use it for other people as well. It also reminds us that the day will come when our worldly wealth will be gone, and we shall have to give account of ourselves before Judge Jesus. One commentary labels most of these verses condemnations of the corrupted heart, which fits well. Verse 18 is the most terse and hard of all the New Testament statements about divorce and should not be read in isolation from the others in Matthew chapter 5 verses 31-32 which says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, which say, To the married I give this command, A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. These contrast with our verse in Luke, which I remind you says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Moving on then to question four, what are the barriers against which people are forcing their way into the kingdom in your world? Verse 16 that was, which said the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Is that happening in your world? Obviously you have to answer that one for yourself. Now we read this same chapter 16, the remaining verses, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abram far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abram replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
He answered, Then I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abram replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The difficulties continue. Lazarus is the only person in all the parables who is named, although one papyrus does call the rich man Newis. Purple clothing was strictly reserved for the elite of Roman society. Abraham sighed, literally his bosom, uh, that is, Lazarus was reclining at the table just in front of Abraham, was thought to be the best place to be after death. The whole story, like the rest of the parables, is probably not meant to be understood as a real-life episode. We should not draw any conclusions about the geography of heaven and hell from it. Question 5. What does the attitude of the dogs, savage dogs, guard dogs, to Lazarus tell us about him? The dogs were expressing what the rich man should have done. Lazarus is clearly depicted as a nice guy, a likeable fellow. Question 6. What does the rich man's attitude in the afterlife to Lazarus tell us about him? He thought of himself as a big man, so Lazarus ought to act as his slave. He failed to realise that we are all equal in death and indeed ought to consider others equal to ourselves in this life. Again, the parable lacks an ending. The last statement has an element of wry humour about it. Jesus clearly realises that his death will not be the last event of his life. Question 7. What is the main message of this parable? It is the way Jesus taught about judgment as an inevitable and unavoidable experience after death. As Paul says, very bluntly, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is a sharp reminder to us that we should not only claim allegiance to Christ as our Saviour, but also demonstrate in our lives that that allegiance is real. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.